0: Hi, I'm Andrea Blythe, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with John Sibley-Williams. John is the author of As One Fire Consumes Another, which won the Orson Poetry Prize in 2019 and which we'll be talking about today. He is also the author of Skin Memory, which won the Backwaters Prize and is forthcoming from University of Nebraska Press, also in 2019, as well as Disinheritance and Controlled Hallucinations. A 19-time Pushcart nominee, John is the winner of numerous awards, including the Wabash Prize for Poetry, the Philip Booth Award, American Literary Review Poetry Contest, Phyllis Smart Young Prize, Nancy D. Hargrove Editor's Prize, Confrontation Poetry Prize, and Locks Millar Prize. He serves as the editor of The Infectionist Review and works as a literary agent, previous public Publishing credits include the Yale Review, Midwest Quarterly, Southern Review, Sycamore Review, Prairie Schooner, and other journals and various public anthologies. He lives in Portland, Oregon. (laughs) Welcome to the show, John.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Gosh, bios are so boring, aren't they? They're just (laughs) tedious.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, yeah.
1: Thank
0: you. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to have you here. So... Getting to the start and starting at the beginning, um, how did you first start to engage with poetry, both as a reader and a writer?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, I didn't actually uh, connect with poetry until a little bit later than some people. Uh, but I did start writing uh, little stories, things like that, when I was quite young, I think five or six. Uh, and I completed like my first short story, official short story, like you know four or five pages or more, when I was about seven or eight. Uh, I don't know if that comes from my mother reading to me in the womb. That certainly might be the case. Uh, I guess she used to read novel after novel just into, the, into her belly <laughs> when she when she's pregnant with me. So that may, that may have been where that passion came from. But uh, uh, I've always loved language, but I never connected with poetry. I don't know if it was how it was taught, not, not to put the blame on that, but it may have been. It was a lot of you know Shakespeare and there wasn't any contemporary poetry in what I was taught in the middle of high school. So I never really connected with it. And then when I was probably about twenty twenty one, and it was just this nice summer day uh, out in New York at the time when I was uh, going to school, and there was this nice uh, little city park with a lake, and I was just kind of sitting in the dock with my feet in the water. And then just these words, I guess, started coming into my head, just these impressions, textures, sounds, things were just coming to me. And I didn't know what to make of them because I'd only ever written fiction before. So... I, I was like, I, it, there's no characters, there's no plot, there's no, I don't know what, I don't know what this is. They're just words, lines, but it, for some reason it felt important. So uh, I was able to grab a, a marker and I was looking around, I didn't have any paper anywhere. Uh, I didn't know at the time, uh, obviously I do now, uh, that you always have to have a piece of paper and a pen wherever you go as a writer. <clears throat> didn't know that yet. Um, I mean, now I bring them everywhere. I bring them to weddings and funerals and movies and concerts, and there's always a pad of paper and a pencil uh, and a pen in my backpack. Uh, but at the time, I didn't have anything, so I found a, a marker and I just started writing these lines that were coming into my head. I just started writing them on my arms, and then then I had to write on my other arm, and then wrote some on my chest, and then I was just like, okay, uh, obviously I need some paper here, so I ran back to my car through the park and found a piece of paper. It was a napkin uh, in my glove compartment, and a pen, uh, pen, and I started transcribing what I'd written on myself, and then just sat in the car for like an hour, just writing, and that ended up becoming my first poem uh, and my first real taste of poetry. So it didn't come from like maybe some people, uh, maybe many people where they encounter poetry and it speaks to them. And then they embark on a study of it. It was kind of the opposite with me where it never resonated with me until suddenly I had, I had to write it. I feel like I didn't have an option. It just, it just struck me and I started writing it and I, I haven't
2: stopped since. I've written Not quite every day, but darn close to every day (laughs) for the past 19 years.
0: Wow. So um, that's really interesting that it kind of just came to you. Um, So as you started getting into poetry and writing poetry, who were um, some of the poets who were influences and helped um, kind of helped you in finding your voice through reading?
2: Oh, well, I'm definitely still finding it. I don't think I
1: don't think we ever lose that search. Uh, and things I, I find my own voice still continues to change uh, quite frequently. Um, really, yeah, it depends on I guess where one is in their their mental state, uh, maybe where culture and politics are too, and just everything kind of informs you. And now I'm a parent as of the past couple of years, so everything you know things can inform you and change your voice. Uh, and what I re- read back in the day uh, is fairly different than what I read now. But I think uh, a good entry point for poetry if someone, you know, is unfamiliar with it, I started reading things like Pablo Neruda and uh, actually quite a few South American poets, those who were very passionate and colorful with their language. Um, and I I think I probably read uh, everything from, from Neruda when I first started. And that, that's what resonated with me at the time, that that, youthful exuberance and passion and love um is i guess what i wrote about and spoke to when i was you know 2021 20, uh, and then kind of matured both in my writing and my reading and still to this day um and of course the poems back then were pretty horrific i still have most of them somewhere in a drawer somewhere i have that very first poem i ever wrote which was absolutely atrocious i found it about 10 years ago and oh my <laughs> um but yeah, I started. I started. I think primarily with a lot of the South American poets, and then I started finding uh, a lot of European poets were really resonating with me. More language language poets, uh, yeah. And now, now, I, I mean, I, obviously the past ten years or so, I read everything. Although I'm, I really enjoy contemporary American
2: poetry. I really do feel like we're in a renaissance of that right now. Yeah. Wow. Um. So.
0: Uh, you you mentioned like how our voices continue, like keep evolving over time. So as your reading habits evolved over the time, how do you think your own personal like style has evolved over time?
2: Oh yeah. Oh, and it's well, so many things affected, but it's, I mean, my, my structures have changed.
1: Uh, I think maybe the confidence in my voice, which is not the same thing as the confidence as a writer, Every single poem and I thousands, every single poem I've ever written, absolutely terrified me while I was doing it. A beautiful terror, but still, ter- still terrifies me every time. <laughs> um, but, but confidence in the voice in the poem, you know. Uh, so that, that that certainly changed, and pretty much with every book and, and previously uh, chapbooks, things like that. Each kind of has its own structure. Um, so one of the Biggest things I think that maybe has changed with me over the past 19 years or so of writing poetry has been has been ensuring that I don't get too comfortable with what I'm doing. Uh, you know, the first 10 years or so of writing poetry, I was pretty much writing the same kind of poem, right, over and over and over again. And you know, just like chilled, just like my little kids, I have twin toddlers, uh, just like they're mimicking what I'm doing. As they get older you know i was very much mimicking the the work that i was reading at the time uh and then as you read more and grow confident and begin to i don't know find is the right word for your voice find your voice carve your voice whatever verb um i i found that oh I, i don't want to be one of those people that just writes the same kind of poem over and over again because it's so easy to just get comfortable with a certain kind of poem so I mean, I think lesson over, the, over these years has been to always try something new and stretch myself. And whether it's adopting different voices, or if it's playing with different structures, you know, after a few years where I was exclusively writing prose poems, or exclusively writing uh, ekphrastic poems, or, you know, persona poems, or just always trying something new, because it's really easy to just spend years and years and years writing the exact same kind of poem. So I I think my goal, and we'll see if I achieve it, but I think my goal is for each of my books over the course of my life to be fairly different from
2: each other, you know, as I stretch and grow, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, So did you you do any schooling specifically for poetry? Any kind of like programs or that kind of thing or conversely did, was there anyone who kind of acted as a teacher for you
1: uh, you know uh, actually not uh, surpri- uh surprisingly i feel i do have a, a little bit of envy there for people who knew that they loved poetry from a young age and you know went straight into it in college You did an mfa studied under xyz major poet you know and kind of had those connections by the time they were 22 uh, there's a little, a little bit of envy there but uh no i I didn't. I wrote very much by myself um, until I moved to... I'm from the East Coast, from Boston. And until I moved to Oregon uh, about 10 years ago, before that, I didn't even have any friends that were poets or or really writers, per se. Uh, So it really was just a singular act. I just read everything humanly possible and wrote pretty much every day. Uh, But I never... I do have MFAs and all that stuff, but it was never in poetry. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I would love to say that I studied under X, Y, Z, and there was this major influence. But it's just been writing and failing <laughs> constantly. Just writing, writing, and writing, writing, and writing, and ninety percent of the poems being bad, and then and then it's eighty percent of the poems aren't you know are are pretty terrible and unpublishable, and then just slowly getting that number down. Uh, so it's it's just been just been trying and failing, occasionally succeeding, and and just reading
2: absolutely everything i can. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, i think both paths are like 100% valid and um there's like no one wrong way to be a poet and you're you've managed to be <laughs> do very really well for yourself on your path. You've published a number of volumes. So, let's get into um as one fire consumes another, um can you talk a little bit about the collection and kind of how it
2: came to being. Yeah, well, I, I never I never go
1: into something uh knowing what it's going to look like at the end. I don't say, well, now I'm going to start a new collection. And I know some people do, but I just tend to write what I
2: need to write about for whatever reason at that period of my life. And, and then there, so far, I've been lucky enough that at some point, my brain just knows, you know what? You, you have a collection somewhere in
1: here. You know, I just know it. I know to, to stop writing and start compiling. Um, so, yeah, but a lot of the work in, in this particular book, unlike the book before it, um, which is very personal poems, uh, this particular collection is very outward-leaning, you know, and it is very cultural and uh, I dare say political, but uh, not in the didactic sense of, of preachiness, but exploring cultural and political landscapes here in America and abroad and the
2: <clears throat>
1: all the isms associated with that, both positive and, for the most part, negative. Um, I think a lot of where this, this collection came
2: from when I was putting it together, <clears throat> the different threads I started to see, uh, apart from the outward leaning, was really uh, being
1: really finally fully recognizing and, and fleshing out my privilege. As a white male, you know, cisgendered, able-bodied, I uh, there's a there's a level of privilege that I just started out with that is that is not you know not something that I've earned per se, and be, I'm beginning to recognize that as all sorts of uh, things have been happening. Let's just say, uh, culturally in this country and elsewhere, over the past uh, say five years. Um, all sorts of very difficult things happening and some involving a lot of hope and a lot of change and some, some not so much and beginning to realize that the way, the way that other people experience the world is very different than the way I experience the world, just by the nature of the privilege I was born with. So in really beginning to notice that because I was inadvertently writing about it, apparently it was, you know, bothering me and I, and haunting me in a way that I didn't know until I read my own poems. Um, I really started to notice in, in in the book that I was as I was grouping the poems together to see, to create a collection that a lot of the poems had to do uh, at least uh, lightly with toxic masculinity
2: with uh, with the border wall at the time that was just being discussed at the time when I was writing this um, uh, a lot to do with just
1: the really the minutiae of experience uh, trying to put a human face on on otherwise sometimes abstract poems, um, looking at the the experience, the immigrant experience, and then also very much looking at me and my family and where that, my role in all of this, which of course I can't help, but being that, you know, a couple hundred years ago, or not, not even that, um, the fact that as a, white male you know my lineage my family therefore was privileged in an obscene way (laughs) a couple hundred years ago uh so looking at that and i wanted to really make sure when i was compiling the poems together for this book i wanted to really make sure that i did not let myself off the hook if that makes sense um i don't know if that does but culturally and in terms of my family, I just wanted to make sure that I did not let myself off the hook. I wanted
2: to make sure that that shined through. That there's a, you know, that there, that my, that my lineage could be explored while exploring
1: these other larger, larger issues. Uh, it's very, you know, if if an immigrant writer is discussing his or her experience, you know, or an African writer is ex- discussing his or her experience uh, in America. But as a white male discussing his uh, his experience in America, it's like, well, it's inherently so much easier. <laughs> um, and it was even more easier a couple hundred years ago. So I wanted to really make sure that that shined through, that
2: there's a degree of authorial complicity in, in, in things. And I don't know if it shined through, but hopefully it did.
0: I... I kind of want to actually talk about form as well tying into this because um the the poems are all prose poems and one description that I read of the poems is that they're similar to newspaper columns and that kind of gives it a current events kind of feel and I'm uh, could you talk a little bit about how you came to that form and did you kind of choose was it intentional to kind of mimic newspaper columns, or was it um, just that this felt like the right form for these particular poems?
2: Yeah,
1: um, yeah, definitely. It, I, I hadn't thought of it actually, to be honest. This is the first time I've heard them being described as newspaper columns. I like that. Yeah, I. Um, that makes a lot. That actually, makes a lot of sense of this book. But uh, that that wasn't necessarily the intent. But I've done other prose poems before, and. One thing that prose poems often lack, uh, the tension in line breaks. I absolutely adore line breaks. I think I'm in love with them. It's just the tension that can be created from, you know, from if there's a phrase and that phrase is broken off in the middle of it. So you have this tension, you're, you're left hanging, you're, you know, your eye immediately has to go to the next line because you have to figure out where this image is going to end. Um, and I just I just love that the, the tension in line breaks and the thing about prose poems of course is that given the length of the line it, you get far fewer and also a lot of prose poems don't seem to focus quite as much on the beginning and end of lines you know they just kind of flow so I was I wanted to work in prose poems but at the same time I didn't want to lose the tension of so many line breaks so I ended up uh, kind of just creating uh Creating these, yeah, I guess newspaper like these little boxes of prose poems. Or I know um, someone who had, who is kind enough to endorse it, uh, called them little caskets. <laughs> They're kind of shaped like that, and uh, yeah. And then I just found that when I was writing
2: it, somehow the the work f- fell into the structure really well. But it was also a um, as
1: I was beginning to to see the themes that were emerging in the different poems I was writing over the course of a year and a half or so, I noticed that this structure uh inadvertently really fit the themes too. You know, that there's there's this this claustrophobia and this this tightness in terms of cultural, and political, and personal um uh, dissonance really, you know. Uh there's there's so much claustrophobia and tightness to this. And there's no room to breathe in the way that our our culture is right now. And everything is just jarring and grating against each other. And it just somehow made so much sense to be in this, this form, although they just, the form and the themes just kind of found each other, I guess. Um, Yeah. But the main reason I, I went into it really was just to test myself. I was like, okay, how can I write prose poems that still have a lot of white space on the page still have line breaks, you know, but also read as
2: prose poems. So I just kind of created this odd little box structure.
0: Yeah. So when you say um, read as prose poems, in what ways do prose poems, I mean, other than line breaks, like, is there ways of approaching a prose poem that's inherently different than a line poem?
1: I think so, I think so. especially if one reads them out loud and I read, right? read poems out loud. I probably look like a crazy person since I do most of my writing in public, in cafes and such. I Probably look pretty crazy. I've thought about getting a, a Bluetooth and not even turning it on, just so people think I'm talking to someone because I'm just reading books. I'll just in all my own poems, I just read everything out loud. Um, I think when reading it out loud, you really begin to see the difference uh, in how they're. I don't know. I don't want to say meant to be read. It's not for me to say that, but uh, I believe so. Uh, at least how they
2: sound. You know, the the more white space the more uh the, the the more line breaks but also the you pause so much more often in traditionally formatted you know free verse
1: poems whether it's couplets whether it's experimental and phrases are all over the place whatever it is you end up pausing so much more often whereas with prose poems you, when you're reading you tend to just keep going line 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 you know more closer to prose uh, so I, I think so and i wanted to do that. I wanted to be for the poems to flow in that way that prose poems do. But at the same time, with those shorter lines, hopefully, when reading them out loud, at least for me, it still gave me the opportunity to pause when I want to. I love reading out loud. I'm very passionate about that and love, love readings. And have memorized quite a few of the poems in the book for four readings. And um, the fact that I can still pause and breathe. The way that i normally would with a a free verse poem but
2: when you're reading it just you know by yourself just your eyes not out loud then the line just kind of flows 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 flows, um like a prose poem
0: yeah yeah i experienced that the the flow while i was reading it to myself as well um so the the title as one fire consumes another um can can you talk a little bit about um, the title and what it means to you? Does it reflect? Is it meant to specifically reflect overall themes in the book?
1: Uh, it is, and actually, I didn't come up with that myself. Actually, um, the Orison uh, publisher and editor uh, Luke Hankins and I worked out the title together. Uh, the I when I had submitted it and won the won the award, it it had a different title, which isn't a very good title, to be fair. So I'm glad he came up with it, but then he and I kind of went back and forth, and we actually looked throughout the book to find certain key phrases within poems that might work as titles, and we ended up coming up with this together, uh, and I, I think it works absolutely perfectly uh, for me, uh, in that I mean, fire if there the various metaphors for fire, some for the, obviously for the most part, there's, there's, there's a certainly a violence to it, and a, a destruction to it, but at the same time, what comes from that it can be very um, replenishing and also there's of course the fire of a controlled burn or something like that right in the forest where they're trying to get rid of some of the trees so that the rest can flourish so there are different kinds of fires so I really liked when he and I came up with this and we discussed what the metaphor behind the title might mean and how it might reflect the book um, and that's yeah it, when he and I came up with this it instantly it was on email but Instantly, both of us were just like, "Yeah, that's the title." When we were both coming up with ideas. Um, yeah, I really like this this idea of overlapping fires—one potentially being a positive, and filled with hope and replenishment and rejuvenation—and the other one, obviously, being more in terms of destruction and ruin, and having
2: these two these two fires consuming each other.
0: Yeah. Well, um, so uh, fire imagery is throughout many many of the poems throughout the book and like in discussing the current events aspect of it i, I like the one of the images that comes to mind is like the memes <laughs> that have all come out of like everything is on fire kind of memes that have come out of social media and that kind of stuff um so f- from that point of view i found it really interesting um but i also found it interesting that um the fact that you did dive more into kind of the the beauty and the the light aspects of that. And I'm just kind of curious, like, as you were talking about these kind of like very serious, intense um, events that you bring up in the course of your poems, did you actively like try to balance it out while you're writing with a sense of like hope?
1: Yeah, well, I guess. I, I Yes, I, I very much did. It was... It was it was a, a a difficult and long process individually with the poems, um, and then also putting it together. I made some changes, kind of once I put them together to make the themes connect a little stronger, and um, and that was part of it. Actually, was saying like you know what I, I think I need more hope here. Uh, <laughs> although I didn't have the title yet, you know if, if if there are two fires, I have to make sure that I represent the other one also because. Uh, and hopefully that this comes across in the book, I'm not in any way trying to be judgmental. There aren't names of politicians. They aren't saying this is right, this is wrong. You know, None of that. That's that's not for me to say, uh, honestly. And I also find poetry that's preachy or didactic to be uh, quite, quite boring, <laughs> uh, preaching to the choir stuff. So I was hoping more to explore, and in some cases, both sides of something, um, which is not to say that I do not have very strong opinions on probably everything that's discussed in the book. But you don't want to know my opinions <laughs> so uh I, that idea of you know with poetry trying to you know you know open doors not close them uh and open hearts instead of closing them um so for me it was with that it was all about trying to be a witness if that makes sense uh as opposed to me being the one that has experienced uh a lot of the negatives unfortunately of our current culture i wanted to ju- i wanted to be more of bearing witness from my particular point of view of that
0: yeah i think it does um well since we're on the subject of hope i feel like um asking how do we hold on to a hope in a world that's burning
2: <laughs> oh my oh my <laughs> yeah that
1: is that is quite the question um and i i, I have to to admit i don't always retain that hope, and uh, yeah, my and when when a, a certain individual was elected just a few short number of years ago, <laughs> I like to be vague about such things. Um, oh, yeah. uh, that my kiddos, uh, my twins, were just they were like three months old, something like that, and then we spent the entire night just holding these three month old, my wife and I, holding these three month old twins, just crying, especially over the daughter, because I have one boy, and one girl, and just being like, I don't know what world this is going to be for you you know and i still feel that way things are still happening almost on a weekly basis that it's like, uh, especially for her <laughs> where i was like oh my um but in terms of in terms of hope at least in, in in my heart you know hopefully that just kind of reflects in
2: the poetry is we as a species we've been through a lot we've done some really
1: really terrible things to each other um, for very
2: long periods of time. Um, you know, so because of that, I try to remember that
1: we're, we're going through as bad as it is, especially for individuals. It's so easy to talk about numbers or using blanket terms if this person is uh, to the right or to the left, or this person's an immigrant, or this person's this, or this, or white, or black, or, right? you know, there are all these large words we like to use but obviously it's the individuals being
2: affected um that that matters um uh, and it's not to to downplay that at all but as a group we've
1: been through worse <laughs> you know uh as a country even we've been through worse we have the, my wife is half Japanese and her grandparents were you know in the an in internment camp um, we've, we've, we've been through worse and so therefore that's the main thing that gives me hope it's not, it's not that I, I actually I hate to say it but have a huge amount of hope for the species it's more just that we've done so many worse things to each other that maybe this if this is the worst that we can be to each other at this point maybe that's not that bad you know maybe that just means every generation is just a little bit better just a little bit better and then at some point, it will be a lot better once you and I and my kids and their kids have passed. <laughs> uh, maybe it'll be a lot better. But I just have to remember that things are incremental. You know, bad things can be pretty swift, but good things that last are incremental. So I think that's where my my hope comes mm-hmm. from. And also, of course, the younger people these days, they're not as... In terms of voting, they're not as active, unfortunately, as as other other age groups. But in terms of their knowledge on the topics that matter, they have a far greater knowledge than I did or my parents ever did, where there would be one newspaper you would read and that's what you know, you know, kids know about topics, uh, important things that are going on in the world that they did not know about 10 or 15 years ago. So that gives me a lot of hope that maybe, maybe the kids can really, the kids can save us. (laughs)
0: things can change and things can continue growing hopefully towards the better um so one of the themes or repeated kind of imagery that i've noticed throughout the book too was this sense of family and amidst all this the the chaos that's going on around it like one of your poems the children begins with the asking of questions by the children at the dinner table and um i was just wondering like um so that that can you talk a little bit about that imagery and bringing it in and how family fits into this larger picture and intimacy
1: of that
2: yeah well i think intimacy actually is the perfect word i think that's the reason why there are a lot of
1: poems there are a number of poems throughout uh when some of the poems are more I don't want to say distant, but they're not about me, you know, or about specific individuals that I know like those. And I wanted to bring in that sense of intimacy and that sense of individuality. There are real human beings here. Um, and also a lot of the family has to do with hope. You know, that's where some of the hope comes from for me, but also a lot of the fear, especially now that I've become a parent, uh, Obviously, my greatest fear is my child's children's safety, uh, and it's no longer about me and you know fearing my own death, which is still scary enough. But it's it's theirs. <laughs> that that that's what scares me. So this idea that like as my kids, are, obviously they're they're still very young, but I know pun people that have slightly older kids, um, and the questions that they ask that we forget to ask, you know, the world has already. Done certain things to us as adults, right? And we're already acclimated to it, for better or worse. And so we begin to forget to ask certain questions. And kids are free from that; the world hasn't, you know, hasn't put the yoke around them yet. <laughs> um, so there's, there's. I wanted to bring that that sense of human intimacy to it, but I also wanted some of the poems to be able to see through a child's eyes. I guess you could say and you know that that naivety which actually has a, a degree of clarity to it th- that
2: maybe we don't have
0: so uh speaking of family as a father and somebody who's got a job day job kind of thing how do you balance out the the family stuff with finding time to write and do you think like being a parent has taught you new things about approaching poetry?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Let me think two different questions. I think with timing, oh, of course, timing is, is <laughs> oh, my. It's really, really difficult uh, with two, two, two and a half year olds. It's, and, and, and me, as you said, having a job and such, um, it's, not, mm-hmm. it's not teaching at a university. It's unbelievably difficult to find the time to do so. I'm very lucky that, um, that my wife
2: knows that before the kids were born this was it uh this is the reason i'm here i honestly don't really
1: even have hobbies once i started writing and taking writing as seriously as i do um, other things started to slough off the side you know Uh, like i guess like a snake skin or things that weren't as important i just don't do those anymore because i have something that's really important for me to do so i just kind of i I kind of just don't do anything else. <laughs> I pretty much spend time with my kids. I work and I write and that's it. I, uh, all my other hobbies, my other interests, hiking, doing things with friends, just all the various other things I used to enjoy doing. I just kind of don't do anymore because I have to prioritize and the kids and writing
2: are the, uh, the priorities. So I, I find the time it's really hard, but I do find the time. Um, I still write uh, almost every day, but um
1: yeah, in terms of how it's affected me, I mean, it hasn't necessarily affected the writing itself very much.
2: But it, I guess when people talk about being a, a parent, you're supposed to say, "Of course," all these positive things. That's what you're
1: supposed to say, right? <laughs> I think. Um, and uh, and obviously, it's so difficult, um, so difficult having ones. and just as a human being, and all the fears associated with that, and how how well you're doing, and the contradictory overpowering emotions you feel on an almost daily basis and
2: everything. It's, it's quite taxing. Uh, but I think what's affected me the most is that even if
1: the vast majority of the days are, you know, sleepless still, and, you know, and felt the, you know, whining and screaming, there's always just, you know, drama. And there's, there's all this stuff about being a parent. And, but then realizing that, that even if there's just that little crack of light in a given day, that, that light, that love is so strong that it totally eclipses the rest. It makes it all worth it, you know? Um, and I think that began to resonate with me in terms of the poetry too, even like where we are culturally right now, the fact that, that, that little bit of light that shines through is so much more powerful than everything else that's being thrown at us. All the negative, even if it's 99% negative and 1% positive in the news, it's that that's the hope. That's the strength and the light. And it is so much more powerful than the rest of it. And I think it's because I love my kiddos, so much that, regardless of all the everyday, mundane difficulties and the emotional uh, turmoil that comes with that, that, that love is and that light is so strong that the rest of it is just, even the rest of it is just wonderful putting up with it, you know? So I think that has affected my poetry more than anything, is that I tend to, I've noticed that more and more in my poems, and, and a lot in this book, where the poems, there's a lot of, there's a lot of strife and a lot of struggle. Be they personal or political, but then they end up at a point where there's just this tiny, tiny ray of hope somewhere in them, often near the end, right? And it's that tiny ray of hope that ends up hopefully defining the whole poem. Is that little bit? It's not the suffering that's ninety percent of the poem. Is that those two lines, you know, in a poem that have the light in them that hopefully reframe and give a new context to the whole poem? I think that's kind of what it's like having having kids, you know, everything does and should revolve around them. And it changes how I view everything else in my life.
0: Yeah. Wow. So on that note, um, would you like to read one of the poems uh, from your collection?
2: Sure. Absolutely. Um, I think I'm going to grab
1: this one here. There's a poem um, that actually I, I end all on all my readings
2: with, and I don't know if it's my favorite. It's my favorite to read a lot, at least. Um, This poem is called The Crossing. Tell me what not to do with heaven-faced children
1: torn between parents who are torn apart by a river tearing a long, muddy scar into this long and lengthening landscape. Then tell me Again, why we are the only animal bound by maps, shifting allegiances,
2: tell me what not to forgive of stars, what skin my skin is forbidden to touch,
1: what heart my heart cannot possibly hold without breaking.
2: Don't tell me the best way to break a body without damaging its shell. We all know how that story ends. Ask the bridled horses. Ask mothers waiting by docks for
1: warships never to return. Ask any long, cold winter night in any part of any country any
2: child has ever fled to find herself no closer to home. Please tell me, what road that begins in ruin ends somewhere beautiful? wow that is a beautiful piece um
0: can you talk a little bit about this poem and in, in particular and its iteration
2: yeah absolutely i mean it's <clears throat> it, it very much is about the the immigrant experience or at least in the moment
1: of the immigrant experience the idea of actually the crossing you know it is that crossing um but more so than also the fact that there are you know I know it, says it in there, but you know, the children being, children, parents, families just being
2: torn apart by such a move. Um, but also that idea that we, two of the two of the things that, that bothered me, I
1: guess, the most or haunted me the most, uh, that to drive this home, is the idea that someone could put that much effort. I mean, risk death, risk their children's death,
2: just to get to a country that. Close to a majority of the people in it don't want them to come there, but they're still willing to face physical,
1: emotional, and every other kind of struggle still to get here. It's just there's so much, ah, there's so many contradictory emotions there, at least for me. You know, there's this degree of hopelessness, you know, of a place that you really want to leave and then ending up at a place that may not that that is that is not the way it's been painted in hollywood for for people of other countries um but also such beauty and such power of the human spirit you know to still do that to be able to do that, and so much hope in in people who they 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 look across a border metaphorically or physically you know they look across a border and what they see is. Hope they see something new for their family. And that is
2: there's just so much beauty there too. Uh, alongside the kind of the 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 cynicism. And so there is there's a definitely a lot of, I guess you could say, cynicism in the poem. Um in terms of in terms of, because
1: of the what skin my skin is forbidden to touch, or what heart my heart cannot possibly hold without breaking, uh inserting myself a little bit into the poem in that you know, uh Culturally that maybe we're being told, like, oh, you know, there are certain people there are people with this skin tone and people with this skin tone. And they you know, there should there shouldn't be some sort of a relationship there. If it's physical, friendship, whatever it is, there is inherently some sort of a difference between, you know, these people based on the tones of their skin. Or the heart. What heart my heart's not possibly cold without breaking. So apparently, you know, I'm not, you know, culturally, or at least for a lot of people in the country, probably close to half, uh, you know. I use uh, someone else. Uh, we shouldn't be having emotions for people just because of the color of their skin, or where they come from, or their religion. Um, so there's just a lot. I was trying to. Oh, there's a lot of sadness there. A lot of sadness. And then at the end, there is that kind of question of the telling me what road that begins in ruin ends somewhere beautiful. And uh, I have absolutely no idea if any road that begins in ruin ends somewhere beautiful. I really want to hope that that happens for individuals and for us as a country, but I don't know. So I think for me, a lot of the, it speaks to a lot of the, uh, the themes and structures of, of this collection is idea of instead of ending on a negative note or instead of, instead of ending on hope ending in a way where the reader has to make up his or her mind, you know, like you might read that last line as
2: hope. Someone else might read it as hopelessness. You know, it just kind of depends on your experience with America.
0: So um, you also have a second book coming out in 2019. That is an impressive amount of work to accomplish. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about Skin Memory? I believe it's in avail- open for pre-orders, right?
2: It is. Oh, yeah, I think, I think you mentioned
1: that. Yeah, it is. It just last month or so it's up for pre-order. Um, yeah, I'm very, very excited and honored about that one. Uh, yeah, that won the Backwaters Prize, which is a University of Nebraska uh, thing. So, uh, and it comes out in November. Uh, yeah, that's it's similar and yet very different uh, structurally speaking. It doesn't have these newspaper slash coffin slash box shaped you know poems. Um, it's really across the board. They're, they're traditional poems in terms of you know couplets things like that. They're more experimental in terms of structure. I have one or two eraser poems in it you know, where certain lines are crossed out, you know, and things like that. I also have prose poems. It's, it's really across the board. Um, but it's a, it's a bit more intimate, I guess, than as one fire consumes another. There, there's, there's more of a, a personal narrative involved.
2: But the themes definitely carry over from, from this book. You know, it's still talking about the intimacy
1: uh, and disconnects a family, and still talking a lot about culture, and still trying to use the landscape as a metaphor for kind of our internal lives and things like that. Uh, it's just more; it's less overt in that sense. But uh, yeah, I'm, re- I'm really excited about it. I mean, they're, I'm there. I'm actually just going through the proofing
2: stages of the book right now, as we speak. Um, I've been looking over it, so it's pretty exciting.
0: Awesome. Um, do you have any? Uh projects that you're working on now um so, oh, separate from these two books that you would like to share a little bit about
1: uh well in terms of writing uh at the moment i'm just i'm just kind of writing about what i want to write about and, you know see what comes that's usually what i do anyway so I, i'm not setting out on a on a specific new project i'm just i'm just writing <laughs> and, and submitting <laughs> and that kind of stuff but yeah in terms of still literary projects um one thing I've been doing is which I've never done before, is interviewing certain other authors uh and uh so that I've never done before. so there are a few authors uh, especially looking for uh authors who are discussing culture uh from different perspectives so i've I've interviewed um uh, a friend of mine, Jose Angel Argus, who speaks to uh all his books he has a bunch of different books and he had a, was a finalist for the uh out here in Oregon the Oregon Poetry Work um this this past year so i i interviewed him about his works and um and about the kind of mexican american experience and uh, and i just recently interviewed uh abigail uh I'm, i don't know i'm going to mispronounce it better in person i'm going to mispronounce it but it's chap chapnoy Chavitno? but uh and her book just came out with wesleyan um, press and she speaks about uh, a lot about connecting reconnecting uh with her uh, indigenous uh, up in Alaska or Indigenous uh, roots, uh, so I've been. There are a lot of books like that. Luckily, coming out, it is such a wonderful thing to actually finally be able to have people of color and Indigenous people actually be able to write in their own words, their own language, and tell their own stories, um, not being filtered through, you know, not being filtered through white people. They actually get to tell their own stories in their own language. Um, so I've been, I've been. I have a couple other people that I, I want to contact to interview also. So I've been doing written interviews with people like that, so I can try to explore those themes from a nonfiction perspective. And, and otherwise, I'm just you know getting out there. And I, I have two two workshops tomorrow. And I'm just kind of just kind
2: of reading a lot, but I still write a couple times a week.
0: That's great. Um, are these interviews available for others to read online somewhere?
1: Oh uh, well, um, after I've completed them, I'm submitting them to different magazines. There's a few. Okay, I have a few bites, but I, I literally have just completed those interviews within the last month, so we're 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 waiting. But I'm submitting them pretty much to literary magazines and things like that. But hopefully,
2: they'll be out.
0: Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, so to wrap things up, I would love to know if there's something you're reading or some media that you're consuming right now that is, you find it inspiring or interesting, um, anything along those lines.
2: Sure.
1: Um, absolutely. I mainly, mainly with reading, but, uh, yeah, I've I've been reading a a significant amount, uh, I think, of contemporary, uh, indigenous literature. Whether it's indigenous of, of this country or elsewhere, uh, and there's some uh, degree of I uh, I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, but eco poetics, you know, the, the poetry of the political landscape, shall we say? Um, and there are a number of poets from different countries who are, who are really doing doing amazing work uh, in eco poetics. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean that that's been a really big inspiration. To me, is being able to try to. There's also a wonderful series. um, I think the University of Nebraska Press, I think, that has a a couple books a year of of contemporary uh, African poetry. So I've been just trying to really trying to immerse myself in different perspectives on humanity
2: that that maybe even just a couple decades ago we wouldn't have gotten uh, such easy access to.
0: Great. That sounds that sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for um, speaking with me today
2: oh thank you so much i really appreciate
0: it it's been my pleasure to have you so um this is new books and poetry a podcast of the new books network thank you everybody for listening